What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time. We're still recovering from Christmas and New Year, but we've got big news. We've got a best of episode for you right now with some never heard before correspondence and in even bigger news, the series will return on the 15th of January for Oh What A Time full-timers, our subscribers, and on the 22nd of January for everyone else on the main feed with an episode about calendars to start the year. Very exciting. But firstly, before we get into our favourite clips from our first six months or so of the show, here's some never-heard-before correspondence. Enjoy. Let's kick things off. Um, We genuinely, you guys, there's some fantastic artists amongst you, and we will be sticking the pictures that we discussed today on our social media so you can see what they are. The first one we're going to kick off with is Matthew Craven. And Matthew Craven has uh, sent us a beautiful, it looks like, pen drawing, which we will pop up on our Instagram. And he has written, Hello, please find attach my drawing of a concept for the one-day time machine. I considered that the machine would need to blend in across the ages. There's some interesting thoughts in here. And eventually settled upon a design in the shape of a fairly large tree with a concealed door. Standard model is something deciduous like oak, but there could be an evergreen option for committed travellers to keep in the garage. Okay, so that's the first idea is it looks like a tree so people won't know that it's your time machine. So you can land it somewhere and people just go, that's a tree. Thoughts on that? Has he, has he kind of Doctor Who tardis it? And is it much bigger on the inside than it is on the outside? Or is it a massive 600-year-old oak? It's, it's quite a large oak by looks okay. of things. But it's still not particularly roomy. Think sort of like London flat. Okay. Um, he said, apart from standard controls, forward, reverse, handbrake, I include the three most important features and buttons. One, a full download of Wikipedia for general research and fact-checking. <laughs> that is a great show. Yes. Yes. And making sure you don't end up cheering the wrong side in battle. <laughs> Two. Yes. And I like this one. Hot sauce dispensers, because any food encountered before 1997 is likely to be barely edible. <laughs> <laughs> like a vending machine. <laughs> oh, bringing out the hot sauce in medieval Britain. Yeah. People would think you're a, like a, a, you're a witch or something. That, <laughs> that first power. taste, people would think you'd people would think you were poisoning them. Do you think as well, like, back then, everyone's palates must have been... Because all the food is so bland. If you turn up with some sriracha sauce, 
People, yeah. Like, yeah. It's going to blow their minds. Yeah, absolutely. What are you bring? I'm, I'm going sweet chilli. Bit of heat, bit of sweet. It's not too overwhelming. I think I could, I could sort of sneak that through. Jalapenos. I bet you could go back with almost any sauce and it would blow people's mind. Even tomato sauce. They'd be like, what is this? So sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And the third button. Now, I like this one. I think this is, there's, some, there's some logic to this. Emergency dentistry buff button summons a time-travelling private dentist from the 21st century for immediate fillings, extractions, crown replacements, etc. Very expensive, though, and some sort of insurance plan is probably advised. Thanks, Matthew Craven from London. So there you are. You press a button. Can I just say, if you're going to time-travel in a dentist, why are you getting one from the 21st century? Go, like, go eight centuries forward. You know, go like 28th century. Oh, yeah, and they just press a button and suddenly your teeth yeah. <laughs> uh, look great. And, you uh, instantly and have amazing gold teeth or whatever you need. I think, because when you think about the past, people were constantly in pain. So to yeah. just take painkillers would be so useful. Also, a bit of a slam on the NHS there that he's got a, a private dentist. <laughs> he, does, he doesn't think it's, it's good enough to transport an NHS dentist. It has to be private. Well, I think he's, he's talking about cap- uh, reducing capacity on an already stretched <laughs> okay, surface. Fine. So I, th- I, think, I think Matthew's actually been, he's been very thoughtful there. Quite socially minded, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our next one. Uh, Wayne Marper. Superb name. Once again, mm. Marpa! Um, Marpa has sent us the following title, One Day Time Machine Schematics. And once again, we will pop his picture up on the Instagram. Hello, gents. Loving the show and look forward to it every week! Exclamation mark. Ah, so he really, he feels it deeply. I can't write interesting messages in ancient languages, but I can send you a drawing of what I think the One Day Time Machine looks like. Much like the TARDIS, it needs to be small enough to disguise and still movable. So the vessel in which we would travel the spans of time in is, in fact, a wheelie bin. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. I would have Your constant... Are... If you're in the... T- constant fear that it's about to be picked up by a rubbish truck and yeah. emptied yeah, out. Yeah. And, it'd be and I wanted to the be back. a brand new one so that I wasn't time travelling and covered in bin juice at the same time. Or like medieval Britain and someone's opened the lid and using it. Tip, tipping feces and alternates. Into yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a nightmare yeah. scenario. What, exactly. what kind of street do you live on? <laughs> <laughs> People have thrown buckets well, of feces, feces into their wheelie bins. <laughs> it's medieval Britain. It's actually probably considered quite conscientious back then. Yeah. Oh, look at him, lardy dart, tipping feces into his wheelie bin. Oh, someone <laughs> shits in a bin. Who's like the, the king of England? This is actually one thing we haven't talked about yet. But you know, one of the things that really sticks in my mind about medieval like London is that people used to just yeah. shit in buckets and throw it out into the street. True. And I, like, and in my mind, they're doing it from like the first floor window. You know, like, and you're just begging for your next-door neighbours to be constipated. <laughs> so what do they need for that? They need to be, eat a lot of bananas and stuff like that. Is that right? W- yeah, whatever. Yeah, I think but... you might struggle for a banana in medieval Britain, if I'm honest, Tom. Because <laughs> if that's the case, I'd be, I'd be giving them bananas every week. Every Monday I'd come around, I've got a gift for you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so it says here, here's the reasoning. The wheelie bin can be sourced easily. Good point. And disguised readily from the prying eyes of nosy neighbours, it's, uh, it's my shed and I'll build what I want, he's written. It has a speck of three buttons and even a sunroof in case it gets too warm. And he says, please see attached drawing. I'm going to quickly tell you the three things he got in here. The three buttons are 
On the left, it's date selection, which he described as inconvenient, like an oven clock. You know, this one it's quite hard to get the right <laughs> the right date. I don't know why he's, he's, I don't know why he's got that. But um, then in the middle, digital wardrobe producer. Um, so it basically like some kind of Star Trek hollow suit. So I think basically it creates the outfit that is applicable for the time. Oh, okay, which is quite good. Very I like useful. that. And then on the right, uh, drink dispenser and cup holder, so liquid. I suppose if you're there for a day, you don't need to eat, but you, you yeah. will need liquid. Oh, so I get quite grumpy if I'm hungry. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be. I don't want to be grumpy during the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe can I counter argue that it would be so exciting to be back there in the Renaissance that the fact you're hungry would just like slightly fade into the background? Possibly? No, that's never happened. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In all my times, travelling back in time <laughs> to the Renaissance, <laughs> not once has that happened. The so calibration of that outfits thing is going to be interesting. Do you think, like, if you went back to the 60s, it would just be really stereotypical? Like, if you flower yeah. glasses and, like, oh, this machine's not been calibrated right. But if I'm, if I'm meeting, if I've gone back to the Enlightenment and I'm in my wheelie bin next to Voltaire... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'd have to minimum take some energy bars. <laughs> Protein shake. Well, he's going to be saying, you know, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. And I'm like, get on with it, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oh What A Time Pod. Now, clear off. All right, there we go. Never heard before correspondence. And now, here's a few of our favourite clips from the first few months of Oh What A Time. Here they're coming right now. Enjoy. I got, I got, I got heckled a little bit. and A little bit. <laughs> Let's just say boys will be boys, and I absolutely neutralised my opponent. <laughs> now, he was, he was quite pissed off with me, uh, to the extent that he, that, he, that he followed me into the car park, right? No. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he wanted to have a scrap, and I thought, oh, my God. Now, happily for me, uh, whilst Tom Crane may or may not have been on the bill, I can't remember. We definitely did that gig together. I can't remember if it was that night. The person who was on the bill was a Canadian prop act called uh, Rex Boyd. Oh, yeah. Who, his big closer was he used to juggle with machetes. Mm-hmm. So I said, Jesus Christ, that sort of, that, that bloke in the grey coat is, he's coming after me in the car park, Rex. And Rex said, don't worry about it, I've got these. <laughs> he pulled his machetes out <laughs> brought me back to my car. <laughs> Oh, that's absolutely amazing. I once, uh, I think I've told you about this, Ellis, did a corporate that went so badly I got hit on the head with a volivon. Yes, I remember Yeah, that, that was a low one. What a fr- Thrown from the back. <laughs> Thrown at you. Yeah. And I said, stop doing that. You're wasting your food, as a joke. And he said, it's a buffet. There's plenty where that came from. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, oh my God. God. Isn't that Brian Connolly's catchphrase? <laughs> it's a buffet. <laughs> Pop culture Ellis, reference for the kids. Ellis, question: Did I win them round after that? No. Did you win them round after that? No, no of absolutely course you didn't. not. No, no. <laughs> if anything, it got worse. Any sense of authority you had, I'm doubting you very much, had gone. So it was, it was a really inopportune reminder that there is a buffet instead of this. 
<laughs> so Chris, back to the history. Away from my shame. Um, so Clack. So yeah, hecklers. You ima- they're often spontaneous, or so you imagine. But if you trod the boards in nineteenth-century France, it's likely you would hear interruptions that were planned and undertaken by professionals. Wow. I've never heard of this. This has blown my mind. I'm so excited to tell you about it. Have you heard of the clackers? No. Have you ever heard of these? No. Obviously, you heard of on you know stooges in the audience. Well, this was a very professional set, these were. The clackers, as they were known. A group of people hired to applaud a performance. So who exactly was the clacker? This is from one French newspaper, Contemporary Source. The clacker is an applauder employed by the management to stoke the success of a piece of theatre or an artist. Wow. They continued. The clackers constitute, along with the actors and the audience, the three indispensable elements of the theatre. Today, the age of ovation is over. The public, the real public, no longer applauds. They do not take the trouble to applaud. They are afraid of soiling their trousers or reddening their hands. They no longer cry out. They murmur bravo instead to avoid growing hoarse. The clackers are the result of these habits. The clackers will howl, stamp their feet, etc. The clackers were massive. At the largest venues, the entire operation might involve anywhere between 100 to 150 clackers. In smaller ones, 50 to 70 clackers. The least number of clackers was 30 at any one time. Would you have appreciated some when we get when we launch when we hit the road with oh, What a Time live shows? Can we get some 30 clackers in there? <laughs> I think, to be honest, it's imperative that we get 30 clackers. <laughs> all, hang, all, all cheering us in French accents. I think I'd be um, a bit hurt if I turned up to do a tour show and the theatre said to me, "Don't worry, we've it's seventy five percent clackers." <laughs> <laughs> we could see how this is going to oh, go. Oh, you think I'm going to absolutely bloody rip this? <laughs> so the clacks were were well organised. There was a boss, the chef de attack, who marshaled proceedings and could become very famous indeed. Below them, there were lieutenants who rang brigades that spread out within the theatres and sergeants below them. The man credited with inventing the clack as a method of ensuring appreciative audiences in the theatre was the 16th century poet Jean Durat, who gave freebies to would-be patrons in return for their claps and cheers when the curtain fell. Such was the success of Durat's invention that rivals soon became very jealous and they too employed clackers for their performances. And then it was realised... I don't know if you. I don't know if you saw this coming. I didn't. But this is what happened next is incredible. They then realised it inevitably that clackers didn't need to just clap. They could potentially boo as well. They could interrupt oh as well God. as applaud. Amazing. They could harm a production as well as encourage it. All for the right level of financial return. Can someone smell a protection racket coming on? No. Wow. So they threatened. They said, "If you don't pay us, we're going to start booing." Exactly that. I'll move. I'll move on to that. By the 19th century, the clackers had developed into such a phenomenon within French theatre that they were professionally organised. What a job! I know. Oh, good to see you, mate. It's been ages. How are the kids getting on? Um, Abigail's studying midwifery, so we're very, very proud of her. And my son, <laughs> um, Ryan's a clacker. Is he? <laughs> yeah, he prefers the booing if he's totally honest. <laughs> Uh, 
I think the sea is possibly the most overrated destination on earth. Whenever I'm on holiday and there's a choice between beach or pool, I never pick beach. It, the, when you get close to the sea and the seaweed and the stench, and then you get out there and the jellyfish, I can't. Th- I hate the sea. I love looking at the sea, but I also have an unbelievable fear of the sea. Now, there's a couple of things um, sort of ground me in this. First of all, my grandfather, who was a the uh, captain of the merchant navy in World War Two, was um, torpedoed uh, in World War Two uh, and went down. He died. Um, bit of confusion oh, in primary school in that I used to go around telling everyone he'd been harpooned. Which was- <laughs> quite a different story <laughs> my mum was always having to correct me <laughs> it's like, no 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 so today's episode we're talking about this a life at sea that's what we're we're talking about it feels early doors like we might not be the people that are best suited to this <laughs> but i think we are because because of my hatred for the sea i've always been fascinated by terrible stories of stuff that happened at sea yeah and i've always i i once went on uh i got the ferry to santander once on a holiday and I and it was really rainy on the deck and I was running around chasing my brother and I slipped and I just and I hit the edge of the boat like I was, ne- I was never close to going overboard but in that moment like it really struck me I that was 300 years ago and I went overboard you've got no chance of course absolutely zero chance of pulling through that no yeah, yeah you'd yeah. land in the sea and you'd think to yourself someone needs to invent the course guard now <laughs> It'd be annoying that you, 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 you a, came up with the idea as you hit, you go, why did I come up with this earlier? As a, as a matter of urgency, someone needs to invent the thing I've just I've just imagined. But also the, the other astonishing thing is that a lot of the time they didn't bother to go back and try and save you. Really? No, yeah. that, that, I've got a real issue with that. <laughs> go on. I, 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 I would be lying there, tread, stand, you know, in the water, floating as mm. best as I could, treading water as best as I could, just thinking to myself, this shows a lack of empathy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if everyone on that boat over there, currently sailing away from me, could put themselves in my position, I would really, really appreciate that. Because, <laughs> got to be honest, I'm frightened now, and I'm cold. <laughs> And I can only see the situation getting yeah. worse. Yeah. <laughs> also, like it's a bit like I thought it's a bit like being sucked out into outer space. But the benefit there is you die instantly, like your head explodes, whatever. <laughs> In the sea, you've got the ability can to we keep your... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. just the head. So the, hel- the helmet <laughs> stops working when you're sucked. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, okay. yeah. I haven't researched what happens okay. in outer space. Yeah, yeah. But in the sea, you've got the ability to keep yourself alive for yeah. potentially days. Yeah, yeah. There's food swimming around you for a start. Yeah, delicious. <laughs> you're quicker. Delicious cod. <laughs> so, a delicious cod, lots of costume, and then some delicious batter, and then a delicious fryer, and then a delicious plate, knife and fork, salt, vinegar, and tomato ketchup. <laughs> We're looking at life at sea this week, um, so I thought I'd choose pirates and piracy because there's a slightly odd quirk about uh, piracy in that a lot of very world-class pirates happen to be from very near where I grew up. Um, yeah, Wales, Wales is very good at producing sort of world-class wingers, your Ryan Giggses, your Gareth Bales, uh, and pirates. So three of the characters from Robert Louis Stevenson's novel Treasure Island were based on the Welsh pirates Harry Morgan, who grew up in Llanrymly, Black Bart, 
Bertie Lee, as he was known in in, uh, in Welsh, John Roberts, who was from Pembrokeshire, and Hall Davis, who was also from Fishguard, well, well, well. Uh, which uh, uh, which is also in Pembrokeshire. <coughs> do the, so the, do the, does the um, do the films Pirates of the Caribbean sort of bite a little bit? Should be sort of Pirates <laughs> of Pembrokeshire. I I think there's room for Welsh actors in Pirates of the Caribbean. It annoys me that they went for the big Hollywood names. So the, the the golden age of piracy is the 1650s to 1730s, um, and yeah, we we produced an awful lot of top pirates. And and the interesting thing I think with pirates is that they came from all sections of society. So you might be a landowner's son, but if you weren't the firstborn and you didn't inherit your old man's fortune, um, or if you were a farmhand, you just thought, well, it's it's probably better to be a pirate than to do this. This is this is rubbish. <laughs> So the one I'm really interested in is a guy called um, uh, John Roberts, Bartholomew Roberts, known as Barty the Black Bart. And, he, I mean, he was he was a world-class pirate who stole a lot of ships and stole a lot of stuff. But he's quite a curious bloke because he only drank tea. He was an abstainer. Um, he was a Sabbatarian, so he didn't like stuff to happen on a Sunday. And he'd... <laughs> weird thing I was just thinking about pirates is like having rules because by your, your very essence rules. you are you are lawless there should be no rules yeah. to, so to create he allowed, rules yeah he, he allowed no women aboard his ships um any man who brought a woman on board disguised as a man <laughs> that was that was punishable by death he allowed no gambling he was a pirate who didn't like gambling so he weren't allowed to gamble at cards or at dice right that couldn't be played for money he strongly disapproved of that. He had musicians on board, and they were they. So every pirate on his ship had the right to demand a tune at any hour of the day. <laughs> it's like early Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from Sundays, yeah. when Spotify was turned off. That's probably more like Napster if yeah. he's pirating it. Yeah. There you go. Very nice. So. So, what, he, so you could you could just go up to go up to them and say, "I want to hear what would it be?" Um... Yeah, yeah, murder on the dance floor by Sophie Ellis Baxter. Get lucky by Daft Punk. Yeah, yeah, and then they would they'd have to get the violins out and, and yeah. approximate it as best as they could. Yeah, um, and he he really looked the part as well when he was dressed for action. So he had um, he was a, a tall, very dark. He used to wear a rich damask waistcoat and breeches, a red feather in his cap, a gold chain round his neck with a large diamond cross dangling from it, a sword in his hand, and he had two pairs of pistols hanging at the end of a silk a sling that was flung over his shoulder. He kind of looked like a cartoon pirate. But he, but he, was, a, but he was a Welsh bloke who used to run chapel services on a Sunday. So do you think that a lot of this, is, a lot of this, I guess, is about controlling his crew, isn't it, really? That's what it is. It's about trying to, feeling that your crew's going to be unruly and trying to, I imagine that's where it's, where it's stemming from, isn't it? Trying to create some kind of structure and organisation where you fear it sort of imploding and mutiny. And, and they stuff. were pissed all the time. Exactly, yeah. Because um, it was impossible to take uh, large supplies of water on board with you. So you would drink, you would drink rum. I mean, that's, that's a sort of cliche that, that's born out of real life. I found a list of uh, Martin Frobisher's second voyage to North America in 1577. There was a list of all the food that was prepared that the men could have per day. Do you want to hear it? Each day you would get one pound of biscuit, one gallon of beer per man per day, one pound of salt beef, oatmeal and rice, uh, a a pound of butter and a half pound of cheese per man per day, honey, a hog's head of cooking oil, uh, 
and a pipe of vinegar. Well, it's I think like, like the um, cooking on the vinegar. It's but like a really the, the mad g- bag on Ready Steady Cook, isn't it? You've... <laughs> <laughs> See what you can do with that. A gallon of beer is a bit much. I'm not sure I need that, Ainsley, but... Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, but, but that list is like... Sh- I mean, how is, not, how is everyone not constipated they used the to eat a, time? They used to eat a lot of fermented vegetables and things. Because the problem is, if you're going on... If you're, if you're on a ship for months and months, it's impossible to keep anything fresh. Everything would go mouldy. Yeah. So you'd have lots of cured meat. Biscuits. Biscuits was a staple diet. Um, and then, yeah, and fermented stuff if you could get hold of it. But it's it's not it's not an ideal way to live. There, there, there is, the, the reason that the pirate diet doesn't exist is because it was a it was a very very bad diet. <laughs> yeah. Imagine you go when, around when, someone's when, house. Yeah. When they've got a gallon of beer there, yeah. a pound of salt beef, yeah. a pound of biscuit. What's, what are you eating here? That's oh, it's the pirate diet. Yeah, not hurt. Gwyneth Paltrow looks rough these days, doesn't she? Yeah, she's uh, pioneered the pirate diet. <laughs> She's got awful scurvy. <laughs> she, she's ill a lot. So it's, it's quite cool. She's wearing an eye patch these days. What, what, what is it? A pound of meat? Is that what it was? A pound something. of salt beef. I suppose they're doing quite hard work, aren't they? Like yeah. they, you know, so you, we're thinking about the amount of calories that we burn in yeah. modern life. That's where... top podcasters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where we walk to the shop to post a letter or something. <laughs> But they, they're battling the elements, they're sort of pulling yeah. ropes, they're doing, you know, so they're clearly burning it. So maybe it's not for me to judge. I don't want to body shame a pirate. No. <laughs> did, you, did you come back from being a pirate and did people go, whoa, you look great. Have you been away? Or did they go, or did they go bloody hell? That's why they grew those massive beards, Ellis, to hide yeah. how much weight they put on. <laughs> so, so this, this, so this guy, he's, he's running a strict ship then, Ellis, um, this guy. Yeah, I just think I just think it's really funny because what's his name again? Um, Bartholomew Roberts, Black Bart, because he'd grown up in a very religious place and he sort of took that with him. And I think he did have so he he had a, a, a sort of a normal legal job, um, and then the ship was captured, and he was initially a reluctant pirate. But he it was captured, the ship was captured by another Welsh pirate who was from down the road in Pembrokeshire. And they spoke Welsh to each other. And he persuaded him, basically, to become a pirate. And Bartholomew Roberts is said to have been reluctant initially, but quickly came to see the advantages of this new lifestyle. <laughs> and so it was a great opportunity. So someone said that, um, someone reported him as saying, in an honest service, there is thin commons, low wages and hard labour. In this, plenty and satiety, pleasure and ease, liberty and power. And who would not balance creditor on this side when all the hazard that is run for it, at worst, is only a sour look or two at choking? No, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. So he, he was like, uh, listen, I like can... Freddie I, Mercury. Yeah, he was like, I can... I, <laughs> <laughs> he was like, I can either get my head down and work and probably die at 51, having had quite a shit life, or I can die at... 37 having had a really really exciting life i'll just have my sort of you know stomach blown off by a cannonball and that yeah. i will cross that bridge when i come to it so he he opted for a short life full of excitement so they would have become quite wealthy then obviously this is there was a lot of money i'm not sure the the interesting thing is it's not you you imagine that it's sort of gold that they were stealing and treasure 
whereas often they were stealing things like grain and molasses, right. which is a slightly less sexy version of being a pirate, isn't it? It's like, yeah. God, I'm a great pirate. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, 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 what have you been stealing there? Loads of grain on the, <laughs> on the way to Portugal. <laughs> When kids are playing pirates, you never hear that in the playground. <laughs> Hand over your molasses. <laughs> I love a lift. The higher the better. Absolutely love it. I went up to the 11th floor last night and I was like, this is living. <laughs> Where were you? I was in a hotel in Cardiff, and I got to the eleventh floor, and I thought, "I've made it." Were you staying on the eleventh floor, or you just thought, "I'm going to"? Maybe. Oh, you were. Okay, you, you weren't on the second floor, and you thought, "I'm just going to enjoy the lift." No, no, no. I wasn't exploring. Okay. <laughs> My dad was so scared of lifts that he would never go on them. So, as a family, the family would get in a lift if we we're in a hotel, and we would go up to whatever floor, and then we just have to wait for him to walk up the staircase. Wow. Yeah, he was so scared of them. He refused to go in them. Have yeah. you ever been stuck in a lift? No, have you? No. No. Oh, okay. But I have got a weird thing where I've been in lifts me plus one other really famous person a few times in my life. Adam Sandler. Wow. David Schwimmer. Wow. Gordon Brown. Wow, so, that might be it. And did you say anything in any of those situations? No, nope. I just went, oh, oh. Okay, yeah, that's, that's what I did when I got in a lift with Nigel Farage once. <laughs> huh? Oh, and I did exactly the same thing with Carl Froch. Yeah, they're my two lift people who I've been in lifts with. <laughs> oh, so um, I'm going to start by taking you back, okay? Uh, before I talk about this Paternoster lift and how it changed everything. So the modern elevator can trace its roots back to Louis XV Versailles Palace in 1743. So that's too early. That's too early for a <laughs> yeah. lift. That's too lift. early. Don't like it. It's amazing. His lift was called the flying chair and it required... <laughs> um, I, think I've, I think I see what's happened here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, he'd also invented a flying chair. That's the other thing, nice. which I'm surprised to take off. Um, so it required the user to pull on a rope to raise himself up or down. Uh, would you like to guess why he had this installed in the Versailles Palace? Was he a big lad? He was, well, he was a big lad, but that's not the reason. Well, it's kind of on the outskirts of the reason. Um, he had it installed so he could visit his mistress's apartment, which is on the floor above his, without having to use the stairs. So he was quite a lazy guy and also didn't really want to be seen (laughs) going around the palace. (laughs) How's that less lazy than the stairs? Well, I don't know. It must have been... Well, it had counterweights, so maybe it was quite a smooth action. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It does make me think, though, how sexy is that? Will that be you appearing slowly, like sort of... The love lift on Take Me Out into someone's bedroom. <laughs> Possibly naked. Which is the next question. Are you arriving naked when you go up to see your lover? <laughs> Sat there on the chair going, I'm ready. Um, I think tiny pair of pants. <laughs> yeah. In, ca- in case she's not alone. Yeah, not quite naked. But yeah, exactly. certainly not fully closed. But Absolutely. how is... So you said that's working someone's pulling a rope, basically. You'd sit in it. It was like a little cabinet, basically. You pull yeah. a rope. And then you would slide up to your, your lover's Oh, room. you pull it yourself. You okay. pull it yourself, that's the thing. It's quite hard work, isn't it? I still think that sounds like more work than yeah. walking up the stairs. It's like your arms are doing the work, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. I also imagine that it was... Uh, I imagine it was quite squeaky. 
so other people would have heard. <laughs> so I'd be thinking about... I'd probably... Yeah. Let's say you finished quite quickly. You don't want to go down, squeaking your way back to your bedroom and everyone going, well, that's been three minutes. <laughs> I'd probably go... After I'd finished, I'd say, should we chat for a bit? And then I think I'll probably yeah, stay yeah. way down in about ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> should we chat and maybe a three-course meal? <laughs> fancy a curry. So, that was the first lift but it wasn't until the mid-19th century that lifts really started to gain momentum because this was the time when buildings started to get taller and taller and most notably the E.V. Hogwalt building in Manhattan uh, Howwalt sorry which opened in 1857 it was five stories tall and it was there that they set up the first ever passenger elevator it was installed by a guy called Alicia Otis now the reason this was put in wasn't because uh, it was hard to get up those five stairs. It was because there was a shop in there and the guy wanted to draw people to his shop. It was called Howalt's Fashionable Emporium which sold cut glass and fine sharp chandeliers, stuff like that. And he just wanted people to visit. So it was kind of a tourist trap. So the reason the first uh, passenger elevator was set up was simply as a way to trick people into his shop, which I kind of think shows sort of lack of faith in your merchandise. Are you thinking, we need to think of a way to get people in here? Well, let's just come up with a new way of travel. Um, this lift, was, if you're interested, was powered by steam. There's a steam engine in the basement, which would kind of worry me, I think. I'm not sure I'd want to get on a steam-powered lift, especially no. with only five flights of stairs. You know, I think I'd probably yeah. walk it. But the crucial thing was, this then led to further inventions in this field. And there was a Liverpudlian architect called Peter Ellis who had a different idea. He wanted a lift, basically, that could deal with lots of people and in quick succession. And when in 1864 he was asked to design the Oriel Chambers, which was a five-storey building in Liverpool, he came up with this invention called the Paternoster Lift, which was first installed in 1869. And this lift has had a huge impact on the way cities are today in the, in the life we lead. So the thing about the Paternoster Lift was... It never stopped. So it never slowed yes. down. It didn't have any doors. Uh, it just had loads of compartments that were constantly going round on like a, loop. a ski lift. Like a, yes, but forward stepping, facing. So you basically step into, like stepping into a cupboard, but that cupboard is on the move. And you'll <laughs> slice your legs off if you get it wrong. I've just, I've just realised what a Paternoster lift is. Yeah. And that, I've never seen one in real life, but I've, I know about them. They are terrifying things. Exactly. So passengers had to step into these little um, cupboards, basically, uh, and they had to time it right, and they had to leap out at their own peril, making their own judgments about timing, because it, it wouldn't stop. It would just go. It would go past your floor onto the next floor, and you just had to jump out and in at the right time. It was really easy to get wrong. I mean, do you think you risk that would you, do you no. know what i've only been skiing once and i was hungover in my defense <laughs> so i'd 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 never been so i they started me off on a sort of child slope and i got good enough at that they said you can do a blue run on your own now but you need to go on a ski lift i was like oh great that sounds like good it was on some day i can't remember how long but i i'd had a couple of lessons yeah they said, have you been on a ski lift before? And I rather arrogantly said, oh, I'll, work, I'll work it out. Anyway, it was, it was explained to me how to get on and off a ski lift, <laughs> at which point, let's face it, my attention started to drift. <laughs> um, I, I, I got on the ski lift all right, 
and it was like a proper ski lift in a sort of in a big resort in the in the Alps somewhere. But when it came to getting off the ski lift, I realised I'd not been listening and didn't know, and kind of blagged it, which was absolutely impossible to do. So I sort of got off the ski lift badly. My skis got um, my skis got caught. I don't think I don't think I'd. I'd got off the seat properly. I can't remember if you meant to unclip yourself. Either way, I I got everything that you could get wrong wrong. <laughs> and I had to, had to be had to be rescued by. But obviously, it's still going. Now, if it if it <laughs> no. if I don't get off, the drop obviously becomes exponentially bigger. At which point, it looks like I'm sort of facing death. So I got Are you sat rescued. on the seat at this point? What, yeah, what have you yeah, yeah, to yeah. Do? You have got your bum on the seat. It's okay, like fine. being dragged and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And. <laughs> I reckon I was probably th- three seconds away from serious injury, and I I know it was bad, and I know I should have listened, and I <laughs> I know that the bloke was angry with me because he was so furious. He took his gloves off and threw them at me in disgust. <laughs> in cold weather as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and swore in a in a language I didn't understand. Yeah, and then I thought, right, just. Just pretend that didn't happen, and then <laughs> it was awful. It was absolutely awful. But yeah, and do you know what? I've I never told Izzy that, and she'd been skiing lots of times. So fingers crossed she doesn't listen to this episode because it was very very embarrassing. But yeah, so when it comes to the Paternoster lift, no thanks. Well, this might not reassure you. Um, in the Czech Republic, they've earned the nickname of the Elevators of Death. That's what we're doing there. Um, But Imperial Germany became obsessed with them, basically, because they were obsessed with matching Britain and America for everything, and they installed them everywhere. And even today, where they've disappeared basically everywhere, there are still hundreds in operation in Germany, even though they continue to injure people. Uh, Some stats here. Their (laughs) Their overall rate of accidents is estimated as 30 times higher than conventional elevators. And, oh my and God. Germany saw an average of one death per year due to paternosters prior to 2002. So since they've invented, wow. one person a year in Germany has died on one of these things. Do you know what, Tom and Chris, obviously we're all parents. You know the first time you take little kids, really little kids, either on an escalator or on the tube or on the metro in Paris yeah, yeah. Um, or any kind of metro, getting them on and off the train... Awful. Is terrifying. And getting them on yeah. on and off the escalator, you just think, I cannot mess this up. A pattern yeah. lift. Can you imagine taking any kids on a pattern <laughs> lift? Ready? 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 Sit! Oh my god! <laughs> not, not only would I never do that, I would say to my kids, you're never getting in a pattern yeah. yeah. lift. I don't care if you're 50, 60, yeah. it's not happening. Yeah. I can't believe, Tom, you're giving away giving these stats. Because I've always suspected there must be a failsafe. There must be. Yeah. I thought that, that those lists surely have some. They must be so sensitive Can that they're they made of jelly or something. Well, the <laughs> failsafe in Germany and in the Czech Republic actually is because there's lots of tourists have started visiting these uh, elevators of death and trying to get on them. They've now put barriers in front of them, front of them because they're often in official courthouse buildings and. Uh, you know, those sort of things. So you have to basically tap in to get to them. So if you work there, you can go on them, but they've basically stopped tourists going on them. Right, so okay. That's the You're plan. on a stag. <laughs> You're on a stag. It's day two. You're a stag in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's hungover. You're the organiser, the best man. 
<laughs> you see the elevator of death as a potential... <laughs> That's a potential tourist attraction. That's like an Inside Number 9 episode, isn't it? <laughs> Would watch. Would absolutely you... watch. Do you go, that sounds like a laugh? Or yeah. do you say, no, we're going to go to the pub because it's absolutely mad. Go on. I would never, ever never. do that. Because you also know no. there's one of the lads on the stag is going to do things. Oh. He lies down and he puts his head out and he tries to put his head back in just before it goes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's this, is, this is freaking Ultimately, it's not good enough because you're just on a lift. <laughs> it's, and it's, you've got to get it Even if you get it right, it's hardly the thrill of a lifetime. <laughs> it's just a bad thing, but with added jeopardy. <laughs> but the crucial question is, how did the Paternoster lift change the world so the, why was this invention so important and there's two reasons first of all before the lift and i thought it was really interesting the top floor in a house or a building was considered the worst place to live lugging yourself up the stairs just to sleep below the roof was considered unhealthy dangerous like as bad as the cellar basically but the lift changed that the lift is the reason the penthouse is now the place that people want ah. to live. It meant um, it, it became this accessible area, and then suddenly you're looking at views, you're looking at the wonder of all that, and it completely yeah. changed the value of you know property, basically. And secondly, and this is far more important, lifts proved that humans could build upwards and made navigating these buildings possible, yeah. which in turn then made cities more and more dense as kind of property owners tried to develop taller and taller buildings to maximise square footage. So without the invention of the Paternoster lift and other lifts like that, cities would not have developed in the ways that they have now. They're the reason we have high rise and, you know, New York and Shanghai and London, all these places look like they do. How interesting. Because of the invention of the lift. It allowed us to build up, to cram people into small spaces because really, you know, build a building which is 60 floors high. If there's not a lift in it, it's not usable, is it? And that's that's the the important impact it had. (laughs) Amazing. How interesting. <laughs> Can I ask a question? So we, we've, we know now people are dying on Paternoster lifts. Can I ask how? Is it what? Are they getting their heads caught? They're, I don't what's know. going on there? It, oh, it doesn't Chris. give the specifics. Uh, do, do you know what? Don't tell me. Do you know, can I surprise you? Most of these sort of uh, government based statistical readings or things like that don't get into the nitty gritty of how the people gore. died. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. It's obvious. Is it? Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, I'm reading about it now. Oh, no. It's mad that any of them exist. I would have I would have assumed they were, they were all gone because they're crazy. They are crazy. How can you trust anyone? Yeah. Also, you would think, I mean, this... I sound like, a, like an old person who's got a very specific set of political leanings, but you would think that health and safety culture mm. would have n- nipped the paternoster lift in the bud. That is true about the health and safety, though. I know what it's, it was actually that the, the health and safety team, they, they worked on the top floor and people were too nervous to go up. <laughs> <laughs> There's a 150-year-old man with a massive white beard waiting there, thinking to himself, we haven't had a single complaint. <laughs> So I've been reading about marriage in medieval England. 
uh, which, for those who don't know, sort of ran from the end of the 5th century to the start of the early modern period, which is 1485. And it's kind of interesting because it's a period when official marriage became sacred and sort of modern wedding rituals and traditions we have today first appeared. And also... It's interesting because it's completely insane. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it is mad what happened. So in early medieval England, sort of like initially marriage wasn't like it wasn't like a religious affair. So you could get married anywhere, uh, like in the in the road, in the pub, at your mate's house. This is what people used to do wherever you wanted. You, you didn't need witnesses either. You didn't need a priest. You just needed. All you needed to do was give your consent. So people would say, "Do you want to get married?" And you go, "Yeah," and then you just—if you both wanted to do it, then it would, could just happen then and there if you agreed. That's it. To it's it. done. That's literally all it was. <laughs> the old getting married in in the road without having to have any witnesses seems quite uh, convenient. I quite, I quite like. Yeah, I think, I think, I think the medieval English have got some in right. Planning a wedding is quite stressful yeah. as well. It's expensive. Yeah. It's really fun. The day was really fun. I got married, as you say. You were both there about a month and a half ago. Uh, I really loved it, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work. A lot of Could work. Could have just done it in so the street. See, Could have exactly. just done it in the street. <laughs> and you don't even need a priest. You just need to say, yeah, do you want to do it? Done it say yes. Could have done it outside Superdrug. <laughs> so this is what people used to do. They pre- at the early medieval period, they just say, do you want to get married? Or they maybe have a couple of people there, but often they just wouldn't bother. They wouldn't have anyone. It would just be an agreement between two people. But the issue with this is it caused problems if at a later date, one of them claimed it never happened. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. such a, but that means every marriage has a, like, a get-out clause because you can just deny it. Exactly, which is why in the 12th century the church made it a holy sacrament that had to be observed by God. So basically, uh, the game changed at that point because people were constantly trying to get out of marriages and just going, no. "Oh, I can just say no." <laughs> Lived exactly, for 18 years, nobody, yeah, three kids together, 20 years. No, 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 no we're not because we there was no because no one in Halfords heard us agree to get married that, <laughs> that afternoon last week. Yeah. You can just sort of claim find claim someone who was stood outside St Dundare on that day 18 years ago. So in medieval times, as we discussed earlier, um, sort of the lower classes often they married for love. The wealthy, as we talked about in Rome, they sort of married for money and power. And by extension of that, actually, wealthy medieval children were often betrothed in infancy. So uh, you would have a child and you would decide... What other baby you want your baby to get married to? My son is four. Yeah. He's not ready to settle down. <laughs> would, he be, would he be a good husband? No, he's so into cars. <laughs> yeah. He's got some single-issue conversationalist. And it was, you know, it was, it was cars. Uh, it's been cars this month. It was, uh, it was eggs last month, and it was, it was ducks the month before that. So he yeah. doesn't even know himself. He's certainly not ready to settle down. I, I find that idea quite appealing, where it's like, well, you, I don't need to do any of the legwork to find a wife. Someone is going to go out and do it for me, and I'll just turn up. Well, uh, you'd, hope, you'd hope it would be your parent. This is the issue, though, Chris. So right. it wouldn't necessarily be someone who is looking for the right baby and has your interests at heart, because if your father died and he hadn't arranged marriages for you, for his children, it then became the responsibility of the landlord in the area you lived. It was his responsibility to find you uh, a suitable uh, partner right. as, a, as, as a child, basically, for when you, when you grew of age. And he's got I mean, boilers I just, to I, not I just, fix. 
Yeah, exactly. He's got, he's got a lot of stuff on. <laughs> like, when I... My first house in Cardiff, Ellis, I don't know if I knew you uh, then, when I moved in, my room was up in the roof and they hadn't finished building the roof. So it was just yes, black bin bags across yeah. the... Um, yeah. And that was like that for like a month and a half. And the idea that that man would be finding me... <laughs> A man who couldn't finish a roof isn't going to really be the person that shouldn't actually let me lie in it. Or animals try to get in and could get in if they'd really pushed it. But yeah, yeah. So, so that was, it was the landlord's responsibility. And also they would often profit because they would sell off your marriage rights, basically. To Bloody landlords, man. Exactly, yeah. Landlords from hell. And then at the wedding, things got sort of even weirder in medieval Britain. First of all, you had the best man. The best man isn't what he is today, you know, goes and gives a funny speech. He was oh, guys, this is a great stag. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great what we medieval do? stag. Yeah, uh, your options are the tavern. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get him in. It's only mead. We're going to the tavern two villages over. We're staying over three yeah. nights. Different postcode. <laughs> Obviously, if it does kick off, big group of lads in a different village, yeah. it's the kind of thing that tends to happen. We will get boiling oil poured over us. So. <laughs> I've booked us in for some archery. Uh... <laughs> and you say, well, if, well, thank goodness it isn't paintball. That's the only thing I didn't want. Um, the, so the best man, it was the person you choose would be the best swordsman uh, you knew because it was their job to fend off the bride's angry family if they didn't approve or if someone tried to steal your bride. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a best man, but that was your, your job. You were given a sword, and it was your responsibility to fight anyone that had a problem with the wedding, basically. <laughs> That's a stitch-up. <laughs> yeah. That's a stitch-up if you know you're going to have a battle on your hands. It's, it? it's the yes like, to do that now. <laughs> in that sort of scenario as well, you probably don't even like the bride. It's, it's a, Also, as a best man, you've got to weigh up how hard are the bride's family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, this is, I think, in my mind, medieval time, basically everyone was hard. That's what I, I, in my mind, that's what it is, because it's such a tough existence back then. I don't think people were... I think it was just naturally in your character, surely, wasn't it? That fighting was such a way of life. Yeah, I guess like, that's evolution, isn't it? You're, it's just hard people are just the ones who have survived, so everyone's going to yeah. be hard. I think basically any, anyone who lived pre-central heating is hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree with I that. do feel that compared to me. Um, but things weren't easy for the bride either um, at the wedding. So the maddest thing that happened at the wedding is the bride's dress was associated with good luck. And often at the end of the wedding, uh, the entire congregation would chase her and try and rip bits of the dress off her. Um, ideally, the garter, because the garter was a thing you wanted. And apparently if you handed that to your lady... Uh, it would mean you would then go on to have a successful and faithful marriage. I hate to bring sport into this, but at the end of the 1970 World Cup final, fans get on the pitch and they're stripping the Brazilian players for souvenirs. And I can't remember who it is. It's someone like Jarzinho. They they get off his socks, his shirt and his shorts and he's no. shitting himself because they're going for his pants. <laughs> And he's fighting with him because he does. As my friend Mike put it, he doesn't want to show his knob to a TV audience of a billion people. 
Oh, that's the stuff of nightmares. The stuff of absolute nightmares. <laughs> she being <laughs> stripped by feral football fans in front of the TV audience of a billion people. Get off me, get off me, get off me, get off me. That, that is so anxiety-inducing. But as a bride, knowing you've got that moment ahead of you all through your wedding day, when, when does Absolutely. it start? Is it, is it is there a formal beginning to the chase? So this would be it... after the wedding celebration, basically, and before you Gosh, go she, she's to your full marital of cake bed. And pissed. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's it's just just after the speech is out, basically. <laughs> the final speech ends with three, two, one, go, and then yeah. she sort of just she sprints. <laughs> but people say this is where the tossing of the garter comes from because there's one of the feelings. It might have been that basically you toss your garter away to try and make the crowd run off in a different direction <laughs> briefly so you can get away so this is possibly where that idea came from i mean surely you absolutely if i was a bride heading towards that i'd go into an intense period of training oh, before. Yeah. i'd be on the track every morning for about six yeah, months walk, walk, walking down the island spikes spikes the congregation going oh god look at those calves yeah yeah it's very odd first of all very micro like, wedding dress, yes, completely clinging to me, so I'm as aerodynamic as possible. Why is she dressed like Flojo? But, they were, but it was apparently it was part of the. Um, it was completely acceptable to be quite aggressive about this, and part of that is they thought it sort of helped to whip them up into a bit of a fervor ahead oh of consummating their their marriage. So there's also this idea that it was all right to be quite rough and really just tear huge parts of the wedding dress away. So this is basically what happened um, during the service. It wasn't kind of particularly dignified either for for the bride um one of the things that often happened in medieval weddings the father of the bride would give one of the bride's shoes to the groom who would then uh tap her on the head with the shoe as a show of authority i don't know what that is as a show of authority you it's don't so need undignified. to do that <laughs> someone tapping you on the head with a shoe is oh, nice. i think that's the least dignified thing you can do also it's like, it's medieval Britain, so that shoe is covered in shit. Yeah, yeah, and it's made yeah. of wood. <laughs> it's, it's a clog. It's like being hit on the, over the head with a mallet. <laughs> I'm, I was born in 1980, and I don't think I'm cut out for society prior to about 1978. <laughs> yes. It just all sounds nuts. This next bit is the worst bit of all. This is a bit that... I think you'll agree none of us or anyone would enjoy most um, much, which is that when marriage became a holy sacrament, it became very important that it was consummated. Uh, so after the ceremony, the congregation would follow the couple to their marital bread, bed sorry, and either stay outside or often come in <laughs> and gather around and watch them consummate the marriage. Oh, my God. Now, the God. idea being it was proof if it ever came up that it was consummated, they could say, well, we have witnesses. <laughs> we have 40 witnesses. <laughs> we have 40 witnesses. That Man. So people would gather around the bed. Some of the family would lift the, the groom in. Other no. friends stuff would lift the bride in. And then they'd sort of, like, start cheering and they'd kind of... They'd, they'd, they'd lose their virginity in front of 40 I, people, basically. Oh, my God. Too shy for that. Yeah. <laughs> How do you think you'd manage in that situation? And would it affect who you invited to your wedding? <laughs> yeah, but no family. I think I'd be no, I'd we're, no doing, family. we're doing no family for this wedding. Yeah. I'd have to say, I'm so sorry, Mum. 
you can't cut no. it. We'll have a nice meal. We'll we'll go yeah. to the tavern. We'll have a nice meal, and you know you'll we'll get to see all the pictures, all the photographs. They'll all, they'll all get put on Facebook. They're they're for you to keep. <laughs> but this bit is not for you. Yeah. So there we go, our first ever best of episode in the bag. We'll be back 15th of January for subscribers on the 22nd of January for everyone else on the main feed with our calendars episode. If you want to get the series a week early and get a bonus episode every month and a fourth part of every episode, plus a couple of bonus episodes that are already there that you've never heard before, if you're not a subscriber, you can sign up and become an O-What-A-Time full-timer at O-What-A-Time.com. All right then, and thank you for listening. See you very soon. Bye. <laughs>